Laura, and this is the Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. Farming is essential, from verdant valleys to golden plains to orchards and community gardens. Agriculture feeds us all and provides the food for America's $1 trillion food industry. But COVID-19 has laid bare a contradiction. Though farming is essential, farm workers are often treated as if they're dispensable. Their labor's considered unskilled, their wages are generally low, and their opportunities for growth until now have been few. Nevertheless, they've shown up for work every day of this pandemic. Today on The Laura Flanders Show, we explore a new movement in U.S. agriculture that is helping farm workers become the owners of their own farms. We speak with brothers Francisco and Juan Farias and Rigoberto Busio, three farmers who've pursued that path. We'll learn about two incubator programs supporting their movement, one in Washington, another in California. And then from Professor Laura Ann Minkoff-Zern about why this movement and this moment is good for everyone. Finally, legendary agricultural labor activist Dolores Huerta on her vision for how U.S. ag might emerge from this pandemic more just, more equitable, and more tasty. Hello, good morning. My name is Francisco Farias, and I'm glad to be here with you this morning. We're here in Burlington in the state of Washington, and this is Farias Farm. Has farming been a long time in your family, Francisco? Yes, my father, he was a, a farmer in Mexico in the state of Michoacán, and he dedicated himself to farming and raising cattle. In 1996, I arrived in Washington and started to work for an, an organic or vegetable farm. And I liked that very much. In 2017, I decided to take a class in a Viva Farms program where they help give you the tools to start your own business. You can also rent some land to start a small business. I made my decision because I always liked the idea of managing my own ranch. I really like managing a ranch and I wanted to do it for myself. In 2018, my brothers and I decided to expand and we rented more acres and now we have eight or nine acres that are probably already producing. And you could say that we're already beginning to be a sustainable ranch that is working on its own. So Juan, a question for you. You see how difficult it is for lots of farmers to become farm owners. What difference does Viva make? What difference does that program make to farmers like yourselves? I think the benefit of going to a program like Viva is that they do provide, you know, that hands-on experience. And then they also provide a lot of resources um, here in the community. Um, and they can also help you find um, buyers. And, you know, they're also, they have a CSA, so they purchase from the farmers that farm from them as well. And then another benefit is also that, you know, um, they start you out, um, you know, with a half acre. They provide everything that you need to get started, you know, like tractors, you can rent them. 
um, water, uh, which is a big one. So they provide the infrastructure and then you just uh, provide the produce. Um, and then, you know, if, if you like it, you can stay with them a little bit longer and you can, you know, increase the um, uh, size of land that you're renting. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a good place to start out. Give it a try, you know, see if it's for you. And if it's not, you know, you're not going to lose a lot of money. Francisco and Juan Farias are not alone. There's a racial and generational shift happening in U.S. farms. In her book, The New American Farmer, Immigration, Race, and the Struggle for Sustainability, Professor Laura Ann Minkoff-Zern argues that immigrant farm workers have for far too long been rendered invisible in government documents, universities, and the sustainable food movement. They came with all this agricultural knowledge and background, um, and they're not just people that are coming to work. They're not just laboring bodies, um, but they're, they're farmers, right? Even if they don't own their own businesses, they are farmers. Take me back before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, because if I'm reading your work right, you weren't underestimating the challenges that contemporary agriculture faces, but you were feeling maybe a little glimmer of, of hope, of optimism. So when I completed the research for this book, it was early 2016. Um, and as I write about, Trump was on the horizon. We knew that he was potentially going to be the Republican candidate. Um, but it was a very different moment um, in the United States politically, particularly in terms of rural communities and agriculture. Um, and uh, yeah, the book is about, you know, somewhat of a a community that I think there is a lot of hope for, people that we should be paying attention to regardless of the moment that we're in, um, that are providing um, a really interesting future for what should be happening in agriculture, I think, in terms of sustainability and social justice. How has it changed? There wasn't the sense of fear among the immigrant community and among the farm worker community um, that there is now. Um, there was the sense that while there were deportations, people living in rural communities um, didn't have as as intensive a sense of raids coming down, um, that they would need to be afraid in their workplace in the same way that they are now, that they would be targeted um, for racial bias the way that they are now. And so I think there was a sense that, you know, even if undocumented, that they could use opportunities, they could be out in a marketplace selling, um, they could be a business owner, you know, they could kind of live this quote unquote American dream as problematic as we know it is. Um, you know, a lot of farm workers were, were trying to move in that direction. Your core point in the book is that who is an American farmer is changing. It's been disproportionately white men. Um, I think you say a, a third of them over the age of 65. Something is shifting. What is that shift that's happening as you've documented in the, America, the New American Farmer? So what we have is a real generational shift going on right now for very good reason. The children of what the USDA calls traditional farmers, which is, like, as you said, the white US-born farmers, um, they don't want to take on the family farm because it's economically um, just such a, you know, it's such a difficult business to be in. They, they're failing more than surviving, and that's even, um, you know, the mid and large cell, the scale farms. So as we see those farmers age out, the question is who's going to take over that farms? And, you know, there's kind of either they consolidate and they sell out to the next neighbor farmer becomes a big farmer or someone else that's coming in to purchase the land. They go under. 
Um, or another thing that we're starting to see happen is farm workers, people that don't own the property, um, don't own the farm business, but are doing a lot of the labor, the majority of the labor, at least on fruit and vegetable farms, are coming in um, and getting access to rented land or in some cases purchasing the businesses from the owners. Um, and I argue that the reason that this is happening is because as um, I talked about before, they're, they're here with so much knowledge around agriculture, right? They're not just people that are here being told what to do um, and doing, you know, it's, it's considered unskilled labor, but it's incredibly skilled labor. Um, and so they come here with an agricultural background and they're really in a lot of ways in the best position to be moving into farm ownership positions. This is The Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. That was Dr. Laura Ann Minkoff-Zern, the author of The New American Farmer, Immigration, Race, and the Struggle for Sustainability. We'll hear more from her later in the show. You're listening to our special Farm Worker to Farm Owner, exploring where racial justice and food justice meet. You can watch this special report at our website, lauraflanders.org, which is also where you can subscribe to our newsletter to keep up to date on all our programming, especially our online exclusives. Again, that's lauraflanders.org. Next, we'll hear about California's Alba Farms, a place of learning and advancement for low-income and aspiring farmers seeking a better life. One of those farmers we'll meet is Rigoberto Busio of Busio Organic Farms, who went from working the fields as a migrant worker to leasing his own land thanks to the Alba Farms model. But first, here's Rise the Vibration by Clever Keys, featuring Diamond Dancer from the 10 years of Clever Keys anniversary collection, courtesy of House Keys Records. Raising the vibration is about what we do every day. The little choices we make, often ones we don't think even matter. What would happen if you decided to be kind to someone, especially after they were just rude to you? Raising the vibration is doing the right thing, even when others think you're crazy. Like picking up trash the person you're conversing with just threw on the ground. Raising the vibration, someone else may rethink humanity from that small gesture. Unforeseen occurrences happen to us all. Sometimes the mistake is ours. Choosing acceptance over anger or shame is raising the vibration. Rigoberto Busio made the leap from farm worker to farm owner with support and training from ALBA, an innovative organic agriculture organization in California's Salinas Valley. I learned this work when I was very, very young, and I learned that I enjoyed it, and I didn't really have anything else to do, so I kept doing it. I worked right here in Alba. I heard and learned about the PEPA program, and I got in, and now here I am as a farmer. So describe a little bit about what your life was like when you were a worker, before you became a farmer owner. I worked with a routine that was the same routine that I have now as an owner and a farmer, but it was different. I had to wake up at certain hours every day to be at work. I had to work continuously on a daily basis. Otherwise, you couldn't live. I mean, you couldn't get by. What was the most difficult part? Was it learning the skills, the business acumen? What was the challenge? 
Yo creo que todos, pero el desafío más grande... I think of all of the challenges, the biggest one is that you start with nothing. And you have to create everything. And you don't know how to get some things or other things, really anything. And the biggest challenge for me and for us small farmers is money. I'm out of Alba. I've been out of Alba for four years now. And I'm realizing what it's really like to be a farmer. What do you think your generation of farmers brings to agriculture here in the United States and to the food system? Food, sustenance, something that can be generating jobs and the satisfaction of giving, serving food, not to a lot of households, but to as many people as possible within my capacity and the capacity of every small farmer. So if there were many people who think like this, who love this about small farmers, it would be a perfect world. But the reality is that it's not. You go on to talk about the structural barriers that make it very difficult for many of these farmers to survive. Could you talk about some of those? On the one hand, there are some interesting programs, FarmLink and others, that you describe. But on the other are some fairly serious and high structural obstacles. Dr. Laura Ann Minkoff-Zern. The first is just capital to invest. Depending on the type of farming you're doing, um, you have to rent the land, um, you need some type of machinery, you need trucks to get to market, you need to pay for permits, right? You, you just need money to start a business, period. Um, so when you're looking at farm workers that are some, some of them make as little as $12,000 a year if they only can work seasonally and they come here with debt, there's the barrier of just being able to start a business, right? Which is related to the history of discrimination that they've experienced. And then once they get here, even if they can start a business, what we've seen and has been proven through multiple court cases is that the United States Department of Agriculture has a long history of discrimination of, you know, what they title Hispanic Latino farmers against African American farmers against female farmers that they've admitted to, right? And the cases that they've admitted to are very specific um, to particular time periods and particular processes. But what that shows us is that there is this history of them not looking at people of color and not looking at women as legitimate farmers and not giving them the same access to loans and grants and just assistance. We've interviewed Shirley Sherrod from Georgia on this program and heard a lot about the movements uh, among black farmers that had to assert themselves to get any justice at the USDA. The names Fannie Lou Hamer and Grover Washington Carver are, are relatively well known. Is there a comparable movement among Latinx farmers to connect racial justice and social justice with farming justice and, and the right to the land? You know, it's it's an interesting question, and it's one that I thought about a lot um, while doing this research. And I would say, in comparison to the movement for African American farmers' rights and rights to the land, um, which have such a strong history, I have not seen the same thing in the Latino Latinx community. Um, and I think a lot of that comes from the language barriers. A lot of it comes from being a new immigrant population. A lot of it comes from the active movement history being more tied to labor 
than land access. So I don't think we have these same figureheads that I can give you examples of. That said, I think that that is shifting. So there are organizations in California, in Florida, that are starting to, in particular, connect the farm labor struggle, which has gone through kind of ebbs and flows with success over the past 30 years, to the land struggle. So I do think that that's changing. I do think there's more intersectional work being done um, among kind of the new and beginning farmer movement to address structural discrimination and structural racism within their own community. So particularly among the young farming community. But what I found with the immigrant farming community is they were still really sidelined from a lot of mainstream organizing in the United States due to cultural barriers and due to language barriers and due to being so physically isolated as well. And I talked to a lot of farmers about this and I said, well, are you interested in joining an organization or getting becoming politically active? And most of them said no. You know, they said, no, I kind of just want to be a farmer. I just want to do my thing. So there's a lot more to tease apart with that. And it's something I I wish I had asked more about. And I think part of that comes from some of them being undocumented and being part of undocumented communities and the fear in getting politically active. So um, while I think there's a lot of commonality, especially historically between the African-American and immigrant farming communities in terms of the same types of struggles, I think the movement is coalescing in different ways. The last data that I saw said that 83% of people who labor in the farms are Latinx, Latino, Latina, but Latinx people only own 3% of farms. So if you have that much know-how and experience and willingness to work, how do you explain how small the number of farms are that are owned by Latinx people in the U.S. Francisco Farias, farmer. Because we, as Latinos, we're not used to thinking about, uh, we don't think about growth and owning our own businesses. We think more about working and earning a paycheck so that we can support ourselves. Starting a business, we all know, is a big responsibility. But you need to save up first and have money to open your own business. Because everything is expensive. I think there's a few other factors as well that go into it. Juan Farias, Farias Farms. The language barrier for one is a huge one. If you don't speak English and you want to go into business and you don't have anybody that can help you with that on a consistent basis, you're going to think you're not able to because, you know, how are you going to communicate with other people? Um, that's one big one. The other one is, you know, not knowing where to find resources, that type of thing. And, you know, not knowing how to apply for different grants, not knowing how to even get a business license or how to be use technology. You know, all those types of things are things that we don't think about, but there are serious barriers to you know, starting a farm business because you can be as knowledgeable, you know, as you can about this aspect of it. Or if you on the back end don't have the ability to manage the business, you know, get those invoices out, uh, keep all those organic records, organize all those receipts, you know, write out a business plan, you know, your profit and loss statement, you know, all that other stuff that goes on in the back end that you don't see. That's, you know, a lot of people only think about farming. You know, you just go to the farm and you plant stuff and then you harvest it and you do that. That's a lot of hard work. It's super hard. Would be a good idea for the USDA and other organizations of U.S. farming to make it easier for farmers like you and your brothers to 
enter into this business? The country needs more farmers, you know, it needs more food producers. You make it easier for a group of people to get into the business. You know, they want to be there. They want to do the hard work. You know, they want to, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's what they like. They like being outside. And if you make that easy and accessible for them, you're going to have a whole new group of people that's, you know, providing jobs, providing, you know, uh, providing food for the community and, you know, also contributing to the economy. Do you think we'd have tastier food? <laughs> Anything to say to other people, perhaps right now who are workers, about whether it's worth it to try to become an owner? Rigoberto Buccio, farmer. I think I understand the convenience of people around the country using that phrase, you know, in a kind of diplomatic way, that we're essential. But before this, what were we? They probably didn't ever even think about us. Today, fortunately, they do think about us. And hopefully, they will continue to think about us. Agriculture has always been a site of struggle for civil rights, economic and environmental justice. For more than 50 years, Dolores Huerta has been in that fight. She's been a leading activist and negotiator for farm workers in California and across the nation. I spoke with her to understand this new movement in this moment in the context of agricultural labor history and to find inspiration in her vision for our future. When you were coming up in the farm workers movement, there was the Black Power movement, there was the Chicano movement, there was the beginning of the sort of eco-feminist movement, there was Rachel Carson talking about ecology and ecosystems. We have uprisings in these times around white supremacy, patriarchy, police impunity, you name it. Um, how are you seeing the struggle of, work, of farm workers in relation to these movements of these times? When you talk to growers, like I did many years when I was negotiating, they always talk about the deal. We're going to make a deal on this. We're going to make a deal on that. And this is the deal. This is the deal on the peaches, on the tomatoes, on the lettuce. And I used to think to myself, this is not a deal. This is providing food for people that they need to stay healthy, to stay alive. Why do you refer to this as a deal? So it's not about a deal which equals profits. We should think of food as nutrition. We should think of food as medicine. We think, should think of food as sustaining life and be, to make sure too that that life is healthy and that we are not poisoning people when we are feeding them. Do you see a transition happening? Do you see this effort being a, a wave of the future? And what difference do you think that transition of a whole generation of farm workers to farm owners might make? Oh, I think it would make a, a great amount of difference because I think farm workers, you know, they do care about their work. They, they see themselves as professionals. A lot of people don't think of them in that way. They think, well, it's a re-entry uh, or it's a first entry level work in, into, the work, uh, into the work system, but they don't see themselves that way. They care about the crops. But on the other hand, uh, the, the one way that more farm workers can become farmers is that we have to uh, be able to, they have to be able to get the, the financing. Ultimately, uh, the only thing that's really gonna help farm workers is of course uh, for them uh, to get uh, into a union, uh, you know, to be able to get better wages and, 
in better conditions. And I think the healthcare system has something to do with this. Healthcare should be provided by our government and not by the employer. You've fought around worker rights to organize. You've fought around wages. You've fought around healthcare and around housing. And you've scored some victories in each of those departments in your life. It seems like we need to almost think bigger, or is it just a matter of more connections? Uh, I totally agree with you. I think that we have too many of us, uh, including myself, uh, we always think of these incremental changes that we have to fight for and that we have to achieve. And I think now we have to stand back and look at the big picture. Say, there is so much in our economic system that is not working. And we've seen it right now that's collapsing uh, before our very eyes. And so that we have to start thinking very, very differently uh, about the way uh, everything, especially our food supply, the distribution of our food, you know, uh, is, is, food, is food supposed to be just a deal uh, to make profits on? Or is food supposed to be something that everybody is essential uh, to life? And how can we provide that food in a sustainable way that everybody can afford it? And, you know, again, you know, when we think of California and where I'm at, and we're the, you know, our, we're the fifth largest economy in the world. And uh, again, we have um, here in the Central Valley where we, people make uh, billions of dollars in profits on food. And yet we have so many children and families that live in poverty. And how can that be? Yeah. So that really speaks to the fact that we have to have radical, radical mm -hmm. changes. Well, you know a lot about building power. You've been part of building a lot of it in your lifetime. Um, what do you think is the story, or do you have a sense of what the story will be that the future, maybe 50 years from now, tells of this moment? Uh, you know, um, just give me a, a little example, because this was many years ago, but my ex-husband, whose name I still carry, uh, Mr. Huerta, he wanted to be a farmer, and uh, he went, to, we're going to college, and uh, when he went to the ag department and told me he wanted to study agriculture, they told him, you could never be a farmer. I think the manifestations that we have seen of all of the young people that are protesting out there, and they have actually speeded up the process, you might say, because they have you know, kind of shaken the, the, the nation's conscience. And this, but we need that same kind of energy, that same kind of movement going toward our economic imbalance. Right now, we're talking about racism, uh, and we're talking about police misconduct, et cetera. But, then, and, but we know that the inequality that we have uh, in economics also leads back to racism uh, in, in, in a great way. Replacing exploitative deals with sustainable relationships, seeing farm workers become the next generation of farm owners, and dismantling racism within our agricultural and economic systems is going to require us to start treating everyone as essential, as valuable as the fruits of their labor. So how about when you sit down to your next meal, Remembering, the food on our table is a reflection of our economy, our society, our values, and ultimately, our humanity. If we can see this moment as, you know, a turning point to say, not only can we not take advantage of those workers that are essential and have always been essential, um, but also how do we think critically about where we're sourcing our food and not um, going back to depending on these very vulnerable food chains. And I think we are in a moment we could make that shift, right? If, if the momentum is there, if the policymakers are there, because the awareness is there. I think this is the beginning of maybe that inspiration about how we really start 
thinking seriously about our food and our food supply. How can we make it safe? How can, you know, anyone that wants to go into farming, that they could actually, actually do it. So I think the opportunities are endless. And, and I think too, now that people are at home and they actually have to cook, <laughs> it reconnects people with food, uh, you know, as, as the nutrition uh, that we need, you know. You can watch this special farm worker to farm owner and see all these farmers we've spoken to in action, as well as find our show notes and links to all sorts of suggested reading and watching and listening at patreon.com forward slash the LF show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the LF show. Our year-end holiday fun drive is upon us, and while we give our content away for free and without commercials, member support is what keeps us going. Members give us the funding we can rely on that doesn't come from government or corporations. They, that is to say you, keep our programming free as a podcast and available free to radio and TV audiences all across the country, whether they can afford costly internet or not. This sort of programming is more important than ever in these COVID times of people being shut up at home. More and more people are stressing their internet. So how about television and radio as a free source? On public TV, we're reaching over 200 million people free with this programming of progressive, fresh ideas. So how about it? Help us make season two. Join now and become a patron. Patreon partner. As a new member, you'll be included in our holiday raffle. You could win a copy of Farming Wild Black, Soulfire Farms, Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land that includes a signed note by the author. Leah Penniman is the director of Soulfire Farm, where growing food and community go hand in hand. She's been a guest on the show on several times. Most recently, we featured her in our Food Justice episode. In her own words, the book quotes, offers the first comprehensive manual for African heritage people ready to reclaim their rightful place of dignified agency in the food system. And during this holiday fund drive, not only will every new member be entered into our holiday raffle to win one of just two copies of this gorgeous book we have available, but your contribution, everybody's contribution in this drive will be matched dollar to dollar, making it worth twice as much. Farm a little justice in your media field by becoming a Patreon partner of The Laura Flanders Show at patreon.com forward slash The LF Show. And from yours truly and the entire crew, thank you for your support. We wish you a safe and happy holiday season. Till the next time, stay kind, stay curious. I'm Laura.